The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week was another wild one for the lumber market. U.S. futures hovering below a record high as daily trading bumped up against daily limit up and down prices all within a couple of hours on Thursday. We got some perspective on how these insane lumber prices and supply shortages are weighing on the U.S. housing market from Rick Palacios, Principal and Director of Research at John Burns Real Estate Consulting. We started by asking Rick the question that's been confounding us all. With home prices so high, why can't we just build a lot more houses to bring the prices back down? Uh, if builders could do it, they definitely would. Yeah, no, I've, I've been listening to you guys talking about CPI and I mean, inflation is everywhere except for CPI right now. And I think housing is really the poster child for that. I mean, what got us here, though, Rick? I mean, was this uh, was this really an issue of just too little supply and too much demand? Or were there sort of just maybe regional factors that maybe played into uh, why we're seeing this imbalance? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I think inflation may be a bit more transitory. Um, it may be it may, may stay longer in housing than than other kind of industries that we're all talking about. I mean, ketchup packets, that's going to relieve itself pretty soon here, uh, I'm thinking. But when you think about housing, you, you've got these supply chain bottlenecks that have been just on steroids post COVID. So land, labor, materials, municipalities. And then so that's kind of the norm across really the entire economy right now. But then you layer on top of that there is just insane demand for housing right now. And I think housing as a whole has had a captive audience on really the entire consumer. I think some of that is gonna start to wean here as we get into the latter half of this year in 2022. And are there any areas that there hasn't been demand? Is it the whole spectrum, the whole price point gamut that we've been seeing in housing or has it been the suburbs that do particularly well? Has it been the less affordable housing, the like plus one million. What what about those that that are on the lower income spectrum but wanting to buy their first home? Yeah, no. So it's so we rank this on a monthly basis through a survey we do about 300 home builders across the country, and it's demand is insatiable across every buyer segment right now. So entry level price points, move up second home, luxury. I mean, across the board builders are having a hard time keeping up with demand. And that's one of the reasons why, if you look at just home prices, so we have this data now from April, from our survey, home prices, new home prices up 16% year over year in April. That's the highest we've seen wow. in the history of our survey. Talk just a little bit more about demand destruction. Where do you see either because the houses just can't get built or because the prices are so nuts? Like, where, what do you see happening when the uh, finally prospective home buyers say, you know what, I've had enough, I'll stick to renting or I'll stick to whatever my current situation is and maybe look again in a couple of years. 
Yeah, no, I mean, if you, if you think about it in terms of our forecast, we do have growth moderating. I think housing 2021 is this very unique window in time for housing where it's just firing on all cylinders for a lot of the reasons we just talked about. But over time, and, and some of this is rates and inflation that is looking like it's going to start to accelerate and rates creeping up, we do have home prices moderating. We do have the rate of new home sales moderating, new home construction moderating. I mean, I think, you know, we talk about a captive audience. There is almost no resale supply in a lot of these markets where home builders are, are active. And so home builders really can kind of control the market where they're at and demand what they're demanding on the pricing front because there's really no other game in town right now. Yeah, that's certainly true. As we start to sort of get uh, maybe a couple years out here and maybe let's say you start to see a little bit more normalization uh, with regards to things. Uh, how far out, I guess, on the risk, risk spectrum are some of these builders? I know a lot of what they're building right now, they've kind of already locked in uh, the potential buyers for that. But how far out do they normally go? Yeah, well, it really depends. I mean, tying up land can take many, many years, namely here on the West Coast. I mean, one of the things that's been helping builders right now is that they acquired and bought the land that they're now monetizing through selling homes years ago. Mm. Um, but when they're going to, to buy land right now, the homes that they're going to deliver on that land, it's not going to be for sometimes a year, two years. I mean, if you're on the West Coast here in California, many years out. And so that's where we are starting to see some builders. And I think, Joe, this is what you referenced in that thread that I tweeted out last week, where builders just don't have... There's, there's not a lot of comfort around the volatility in construction costs, hmm. in land costs, uh, labor costs. And so what they're saying is, you know what, let's kind of pause here a little bit. Let's dial things back a little bit until we do have some more, some guardrails really around what's happening on the cost side so that we can price these homes more accurately to what we're seeing as a home builder in terms of the notices we're getting from vendors on a weekly basis sometimes that are ratcheting up our costs. Talk to us about the labor part. Rick, and how, you know, are more people being channeled towards wanting to work within construction? Is the supply at any point becoming unbottlenecked there or is there not enough trained people? I, I think it's probably a combination of everything. Not a lot of trained people too, namely. I mean, this is something that we highlighted going back a decade coming out of the great financial crisis. A lot of the trades and the, the labor pool that was in residential construction, re residential construction essentially left the industry during the great financial crisis. Huh. And we have not seen those individuals really come back in mass, even though there is a ton of demand for their skills and their craft right now. This is super interesting and it's a really big theme. It seems to me, whether we're talking about lumber or in your, as your description, the trade to build, um, to actually know how to build a home, really uh, atrophied uh, in the sort of post-crisis period where we had this long slump and now we're really paying the price for it. Yeah, and a, a big part of that too, Joe, is that a lot of the trades pre-Great Financial Crisis, I mean, they came from outside the United States. And so we had immigration coming in that essentially shifted, changed, and we haven't seen it reverse. Um, I mean, a lot of the home builders I talk to say, gosh, we would love to have some sort of, sort of an immigration policy where we could get these people in uh, working for us, path to citizenship. And so who knows, maybe we'll see that happen. And so what's the next step here then? I mean, where do we go from here? Um, I, I, I think housing this year, 2021, this kind of goes back to my comments on this, this very unique window in time. I mean, we're going to look back on 2021 and say, 
we have the strongest home price appreciation we've had since 2005. I think we're forecasting about 15% resale price appreciation. New home prices are going up higher than that. Um, crazy construction volume, but you know, builders, if they could build more, they would. It's just the bottlenecks right now are really limiting what they can do. I think when we get into 2022, a lot of the land that has been purchased over the last three quarters will start to hit in terms of community counts and we'll finally have more supply. We'll finally get more resale supply coming online. And I think with that, you'll get price appreciation moderating to more, call it realistic levels. Well, the chance would be a fine thing. Rick, your perspective on cities versus suburbs, hmm. both hot? Yeah. I mean, there's, you're starting to see articles pop up here and there now about how the cities are doing pretty well too in terms of transactions and in terms of finding a bottom. I mean, we've got a chief demographer who's been digging into this for many, many years. We actually wrote a, big, a book on this called Big Shifts Ahead years ago. And, and our view was that you were going to, and we were seeing the suburbs grow uh, at an accelerated rate from what cities and urban core were you had COVID hit and just like with a lot of trends across a lot of industries, really that trend was just accelerated. And so it's something that we're seeing right now and a lot of builders are more comfortable going further out because of what we're seeing with work from home and people saying, you know what, I, I can now be a little bit further out. I've only got to go into my office maybe two, three times a week. So I don't want to live in the city. Now this week, What'd You Miss hosted a debate. We posed the question, has the economic cycle peaked and what does it mean for markets? We asked two of our frequent guests, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen and Neil Dutta, the head of U.S. economics at Renaissance Macro Research. We started with Connor, who has been warning about supply constraints for a while now on his new column, which argues that we're not going to be able to reach GDP goals if the labor market remains this tight. We asked him why he thinks things have topped out and whether that poses a risk for stocks. Well, I think the first sign that maybe growth is slowing, so we're still growing, but maybe at a slightly slower rate than the historically strong numbers we saw in March was that ISM manufacturing survey we saw last week, which did come down from March's sort of historically high number. And some people might say, well, it's still a good number, but it is falling relative to what it used to be. And then, you know, we obviously have the jobs report where we didn't produce as many jobs as we thought we would. And it looks like that was really more due to supply bottlenecks rather than demand. And then on top of that, we've got increasing signs that maybe in the housing market, home builders are starting to pull back just because the material cost pressures is too insane for them. And they want to just sort of watch things shake out a little bit. So it seems like, you know, maybe demand growth is slowing a little bit. And then we're really hitting these supply bottlenecks a lot yeah. sooner than we thought we would. But, Neil, I mean, we're coming right now uh, for a lot of us are finally coming back out of the house for the first time in quite some time. People are looking to spend. You got to accommodate a Fed policy and you have fiscal policy out there on the table. No, I think that's right. And I think that's the fundamental story. I mean, when we talk about peak ISM, it's important to remember, I think, for investors, why that signal has such salience in the markets. And it's primarily because of the Fed, right? So when you have a peak ISM, you have rising prices paid, usually the Fed steps its foot on the brake. That's not happening this time around. Um, I also think it kind of strains credulity to think that this is like 2010. Um, obviously, Europe was blowing up back then. Uh, so the fact that the data... Mm you know, quote unquote, peaked in 2010, not that it actually did at the time, um, you know, it was more coincidental than anything else. Uh, obviously, this time around, we have a phased reopening, um, not only in the U.S., but globally as well, right? So Europe is vaccinating more people, they'll reopen. Latin America will start vaccinating more people, they'll reopen. And obviously, EM Asia, 
And if you think about it, each of those economies subsequently are more open than the other. In, in other words, they trade more. So that's ultimately good for, for the manufacturing sector. So I think, you know, when we talk about data peaking, it's important to think about it in terms of momentum versus levels. And, um, you know, in terms of levels, we're not at peak anything. I mean, when you talk about hmm. uh, order backlogs and uh, customer inventory in index, which is at a record low, um, that all suggests that production is likely to accelerate from here. Now, um, you know, I take Connor's point about certain bottlenecks um, arising, uh, and that may slow yeah. down growth. But if you're an investor, what do you do with that? You're going to revise up 2022. I mean, has the 12 to 18 month outlook really changed because of this? I think, you know, prices still send an important signal. If you're a lumber producer, what are you going to do? Cut production? I mean, so it's, you know, I mean, I think that if you're going to trade around this peak ISM story, it's a trade you want to rent, not mm -hmm. own. Neil, I really hope you're not peak cuddly toy situation either, because that is an excellent backdrop. Meanwhile, Connor, your perspective on, you know, this, this friction, how long it might remain. If we do start to see the supply chains get easier, the friction come off, people are vaccinated, they're no longer fearful of going back to work, the schools we hope reopen fully, women perhaps return to the labour force that much more easily. Does that mean that we could see this more later explosion of growth? I think he's right about the 12 to 18 month view, but I think the market might really be focused on the next three to six months. And I think we're seeing that maybe these short term frictions are a lot more severe and longer lasting than we thought. You know, sort of uh, last spring, maybe we thought that we'd be sort of through the lockdowns in eight months and, or sorry, eight weeks. And it turned out to be more like a year. And, you know, there was thought that maybe we'd have, OK, some transitory inflation this summer. And we're still going to get that. It looks like we have the CPI report tomorrow. But these these bottlenecks just seem a lot tougher than maybe we thought even a month or two ago, and that's giving investors pause. And to Neil's point, you know, I think longer term investors might be saying, well, maybe it just pushes the growth onto 2022. But if we really do start getting these hot inflation prints, and if we get some downside surprises to growth, will investors be willing to hang on for the rest of this year when they thought that this year would be the, the big growth number and next year would be, be lighter? So I, I think we could see investors really struggle with the next two to three months of data. Yeah, Neil, I want to talk about, I mean, obviously, we're getting that CPI number tomorrow you know, transitory base effects, we all know the story. But A, we do see companies uh, whose uh, results have been hit by the, some of the shortages and bottlenecks. Sawmills, which should be, you know, printing money right now, having issues with trucking, that's an effect. And then if you get hot numbers, you know, do, do people start to worry that either some combination of real earnings growth, or, or sorry, real earnings hits, Plus, uh, you know, Fed uh, starting to waver a little bit. Could that create some volatility for the market if maybe, I don't know, some of the regional Fed presidents come off message? Well, they're actually getting, I mean, I, I guess I disagree with the premise of that because they're actually coming on message. I mean, you've seen a number of, uh, you know, traditionally hawkish uh, regional Fed presidents actually buying in to Powell's strategy. Bullard is the, the latest among them, but you see it from uh, Mester, um, you see it from Rosengren, uh, Barkin uh, from Richmond. I mean, these are um, regional Fed presidents that have been hawkish. Uh, so the Fed's going to pull the rug out from underneath it, um, just as you're getting more political buy-in from your lieutenants. I mean, that sort of seems, um, you know, absurd to me. Uh, so I don't think the I think the Fed being easy is the name of the game. They'll be the last central bank to taper. Uh, that's going to be negative for the dollar, um, and that could mean some rotation into uh, equities overseas. Um, but when you talk about production, Joe, um, look, we're talking about one month, 
right? And every data point that went into that one month uh, before it was stronger in terms of employment, right? right? I mean, we had rising employment uh, in the Small Business Pulse Survey and ADP alongside rising openings. So um, does anyone really believe that the underlying trend in employment is 275,000? I mean, my sense is that it's probably closer to you know, 700 than not. So um, as you're bringing those people on, you're gonna get stronger rates of production. Um, you know, we just, we started the segment talking about ISM. The ISM, last I checked, is in expansion territory. That means we're gonna see more pr industrial production growth. So, mm -hmm. you know, these, these issues, um, and you know, you talk about, uh, you know, inflation biting into earnings. We're seeing net margins actually expand which would suggest that the inflation that we're seeing hmm. is uh, not actually eroding corporate profits. It's actually, you know, helping. So, I, I, again, I, I disagree with some of the premise of that. But, you know, well, I, yeah. I just I do feel like um, this is a trade you want. If you're going to play this, you want to rent it. You don't want to own it. And I, and I also think it's maybe a little bit premature to be talking about this. I mean, you're talking, if you look at like equal weight equities and right. the S&P 500, I mean, that's still looking fine. Um, so, yeah. You know, this is narrow to a, to a, to us. I think a specific set of names, and um, I, I do think that the economy is uh, generally on a, a strong course. And yeah. you know, look, I mean, the Atlanta Fed. I mean, Connor knows this because he's from there. Um, that's tracking what, like eleven percent. Uh, you know, we're we're not really. I mean, you know, we're we're sort of uh, you know quibbling over 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 little things here, but. Um, we need uh, quibbling. We need quibbling, strong, though. Strong trajectory, this is so. a round table. <laughs> we need some healthy disagreement. Neil, you want to start with you. You have been a very big uh, advocate of the sort of like the pure reopening trade, long Planet Fitness, short Peloton, things like that. <laughs> doesn't everyone know the economy is reopening? And doesn't everyone know that viruses, uh, uh, the vaccine uh, rollout is picking up? Like, what more juice is there in your view in this trade? Well, I guess, Joe, everyone knows except the public health apparatus in this country, right? I mean, the messaging, I think, has been somewhat mixed. So that may have taken some of the juice out of the reopening trade, as you see with uh, what's gone on with the cruise lines recently, right? So, um, you know, it's sort of a two steps forward, one step back process. But uh, I, do, I definitely do think that, um, you know, to some degree, I think I, I sympathize with the view that the reopening trade is... Um, has run its course, but this goes back to a point that uh, you know we were talking about earlier. Is you know peak ISM, investing does not stop when the ISM hits sixty. I mean, what do you? I mean, I can't tell my clients that you know only invest in U.S. equities when we're going from thirty to sixty. So it, it, you know now's the opportunity maybe to take some of that um, you know some of those profits and maybe rotate it into other areas of the capital markets. Um, so I think that's the way to think mm. about it. Um, but I think the broad reopening, I mean, is still continuing. I mean, we just hit uh, a record in terms of TSA screenings over Mother's Day. So there's still some, you know, I mean, the fundamental trend in the services economy is still up. And remember, in the first quarter of this year, uh, service sector consumption in real terms was really no different than it was in the fourth quarter of last year. So mm. again, when we talk about peak uh, we're going to see an acceleration in service sector consumption over the next two quarters. I think that we haven't seen on a scale at, at certainly not in our uh, lifetime. So, um, again, I think th there's still a lot of momentum in that, at least in the economy. Maybe the uh, the equity stories run its course, but I think the momentum in the economy still has a ways to go. So, Connor, where to put money to work in your thesis if we are indeed at 
potentially peak growth? I mean, you're the dip buyer in, in the NASDAQ or, or where to put money? Well, I think the risk is that the next jobs report looks just like the April one did. And that would really, I think, call into question the supply response. And maybe demand is really strong, but we just can't meet it supply-wise for whatever reason. And so in that environment, you have you know less than expected U.S. growth, maybe hotter than and expected U.S. inflation. And, and maybe the Fed just, again, sits through this and, and lets it play out, which means that we're not getting the response from the Fed, which looks like a really weak dollar, sort of long commodity, long non-U.S., type story. And just sort of with the way that traders are kind of, you pick one thing and not the other. I think if commodities are doing well, tech probably doesn't, even if tech earnings are growing. And then I think also, you know, if, if housing kind of slows just from lack of supply, then home builders could be in for a rude awakening. And that whole housing-related supply chain that's done so well over the past six months. I am curious here, Connor. I mean, we're getting to a stage where at some point we will sort of, sort of see some normalization of monetary policy, maybe a normalization of fiscal policy here. I mean, the real question here is whether this rebound, this economic recovery, can sort of stand on its own, whether we can transition to some sort of sustainable growth rate that isn't completely dependent on Jay Powell and on what Congress passes with regards to stimulus. Well, I think it's you know, in the last cycle, the mistake we made was trying to normalize monetary policy, which really was more like normalizing interest rates, whether or not the economy could handle the interest rates we got to. So I think the shift under Powell is more like, you know, what we have now is maybe normal. And, you know, normal doesn't necessarily mean two to three percent just to try to get there for no obvious reason. And, you know, if the economy needs that, then we we lift rates to get us there. But it's not a goal in and of, in and of itself. We leave it there, of course. Ding, 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 ding. That's the end of the fight. Joe, who won? Uh, I'm, uh, oh, 10-10. It was a draw. They both uh, raised their hand. Oh, snooze. Uh, sorry. There you go, Joe. I want them to both come back. <laughs> You're so I'm biased. I'm biased. I want them to both come back. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This week, we also got more fuel for the inflation debate that's been gripping Wall Street investors. On Wednesday, we got April CPI data. U.S. consumer prices climbing by 0.8% last month. That's the most since 2009, outpacing economist estimates. Meanwhile, the core gauge rose by the most since 1982. This inflationary pressure has consequences beyond markets. Some Democrats worry that the data could put President Biden's spending plans, the American Jobs Plan, and the American Family Plan in political jeopardy. So we got some reaction from the White House off the back of that data from Mike Pyle. He's the chief economic advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris and a former chief investment strategist at BlackRock. And we asked Mike whether the surge in consumer prices will make passing the Biden administration's spending plans more difficult politically. 
So we're staying focused on the economics and the overall strategy here. You know, the president and the vice president have talked about there being uh, two major prongs to their economic strategy. First, around rescue, around recognizing the hole that uh, we were in by virtue of the pandemic. And the American Rescue Plan was focused squarely at that, getting shots in arms, getting relief in the hands of families and, and businesses. But we're now kind of looking to, uh, here in Washington, that next stage around, as you say, the jobs plan, around the families plan. And that's really economically an entirely different uh, problem that we're looking to solve. That is a multi-decade, and uh, probably a multi-year investment uh, in our families and our infrastructure designed to allow the economy to grow faster, designed to allow that growth to be more inclusive, designed to allow us to take on the challenge of climate change. That isn't stimulus. That isn't the Recovery right. Act. That's yeah. a long-term investment focused on uh, helping to build back better after uh, decades of underinvestment. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, obviously you understand, though, the politics and how certain things will be framed, whether you want to frame that way or not. I'm wondering about the conversations that you're having uh, there uh, in the executive building uh, about just the, the pace of economic growth and the idea here that by adding these programs on, uh, you create potentially maybe a little bit too much stimulus, even if it's not called stimulus. There's this idea that you're throwing logs onto the fire. And this seems to be what some people in the markets are concerned about. Is that conversation taking place? Well, again, I, I would resist that characterization. I mean, th take the American Jobs Plan, for instance. You know, that is a multi-year investment uh, that is intended to, over the next eight to 10 years, uh, really transform our transportation infrastructure, our energy infrastructure, uh, you know, our, our broadband capacities. And it's going to be paid for in full through uh, a set of tax changes on the business and corporate side over the next 15 years. You know, that is, again, that is not, the right frame of mind there is not stimulus. It's not about responding to the immediate moment. It's about structurally investing in this economy after decades of underinvestment to make the economy more productive uh, and more inclusive over the decade and beyond. I hear you, Mike, on the inclusion part of it, of course, something that you've been very focused on since coming into the role. But the fact that inflationary pressures drive up the cost of food, drive up the cost of gas, drive up the cost of things that the lower income can least afford price pressure on. How do you square that circle? How do you ensure that you're not hurting the victim you're trying to help? Well, again, I, I, would, I would resist that characterization. So when we look at the inflation print today, you know, what we see is evidence of an economy uh, that is rapidly normalizing coming out of the pandemic and a reflection of having gotten a lot of shots in arms and allowing uh, behavior, allowing social life, allowing travel to begin to get back to normal. So let's look underneath the hood of this inflation print. You know, we've said for some time we expect to see transitory inflation. We expect to see it in particular around parts of the economy that were especially hard hit by the pandemic. And I think in large part, that's what this print reveals. You know, look at places like airfares, look at places like hotel and leisure more broadly. There are very significant month-over-month -month gains there uh, in terms of prices, but that's really a reflection of the fact that uh, people feel more comfortable getting back uh, into the economy, getting back into travel, getting back to moving again. And, 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 that, is, and that is what we think was kind of ultimately a, a lot of what was going on in this print. Mike, let me ask you a question about the here and now. There is clearly some tension about whether the UI expansion is contributing to um, a labor supply uh, shortage. Record job openings, pace of job creation slower than expected. I don't think the data is a slam dunk, but there does seem to be some ambiguity. Would the White House be open to um, the legislation that would allow uh, 
people who take a job to take with them a bonus of part of their uh, future UI? So I'm not going to get out in front of the, the legislative process. Uh, but what I will say is, you know, a couple of things. When we look at the data, yeah, we agree with you. Uh, there's, uh, there, it, it is not obvious that, that UI, with the data we have in hand, uh, is having this effect. You know, that said, we recognize this is a moment when the economy is, is, is changing very rapidly. This is a historic moment. This is an unprecedented moment. This is a moment where the economy is changing day to day. And the data that we have in hand, you know, is a snapshot of the economy four, six, eight weeks ago. So we're very much kind of vigilant around this, kind of paying attention to conditions on the ground day over day, given how rapidly things are changing, because we recognize the data that we have in hand, while not conclusive, is a snapshot of an economy that, you know, doesn't exist anymore in some ways. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now is a wild five days for the world of crypto. Coinbase reporting earnings for the first time as a public company. Bloomberg learned that the U.S. Department of Justice and the IRS are investigating the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, Binance. Meanwhile, Elon Musk delivering a blow to the sector with a major U-turn. Tesla CEO suspending purchases using Bitcoin and voicing concerns about its energy usage just a few months after becoming one of the currency's most vocal supporters. So we got some reaction from longtime Bitcoin advocate Nick Carter, the founding partner at Castle Island Ventures. And we started by asking Nick the trillion dollar question. <laughs> Does Bitcoin ever have a plan to transition to a proof of stake system or will it always rely on computationally intensive mining? Well, Bitcoin doesn't have a plan because it has no leader and it's pretty decentralized. And when individuals or firms have tried to commandeer Bitcoin, they haven't been successful. So uh, Bitcoin has no plan, but you know the consensus in the community, to the extent it exists, is that proof of work is completely intrinsic to Bitcoin and uh, proof of stake is not really a desirable alternative, quite frankly. All right. And some people reading in between the lines of what uh, Elon Musk said seems to suggest that maybe he's eyeing uh, an alternative here. Are there alternatives? There's certainly many other systems that purport to do the same things that Bitcoin does. Uh, And there's many clones of Bitcoin and many blockchains 3.0 and so on. But at least in my view, none of them have proven to be sufficiently decentralized. And frankly, if you pull the proof of work element out of Bitcoin, you get something completely different. So a lot of Bitcoiners would question whether you can eliminate the proof of work and get a system with those same assurances. Of course, some also saying maybe 
Elon Musk is just throwing down the gauntlet here. Make yourself run on cleaner energy, all you miners. So is that the answer? If Bitcoin does need to remain in some sort of digital gold, it's still about 40% of the ecosystem who wants to maintain that. Are people looking at ways of shifting to cleaner ways to mine it? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a big distinction between an energy cost and then the actual carbon outlay, which people often miss, right? And it really depends on the source of energy you're using. Of course, we know that a large share of Bitcoin is mined, in particular in places like Sichuan, Yunnan, uh, in the wet season with hydro. But we can do a lot better. And there are some great secular trends. Actually, the Chinese province of Inner Mongolia recently banned Bitcoin mining. And that was 70% coal-powered. So if you actually look at the trends, they look to be improving structurally. We're seeing a lot more hash rate onshore onto the U.S. The U.S. has a greener grid than China, so that's great. I'd like to see more from miners in terms of disclosing what their energy mix is, what their power sources are. Uh, but you know, certainly, there's actually a lot of cause for optimism here around the energy mix of Bitcoin quite contrary to the tone Elon is, is putting out. Let me ask you a question. You write about uh, Bitcoin's energy usage a lot. This debate, these points that you make about how there's a difference between energy use total and uh, sort of carbon emissions because some of it's clean. Do you, as a participant in the industry, think that from a sort of like regulatory legal standpoint, that one of the bigger risks to the environment is that uh, regulators crack down on it for precisely this reason, hence your motivation for writing about it so much? Uh, the motivation to write about it is frankly because the debate is very poorly informed and uh, a lot of the critiques I, say, I see are just not, uh, not really grounded in reality and, and, and you know the facts of the protocol. Uh, certainly we're seeing capital becoming much more politicized and much more informed by ESG considerations in the US um, and, you know, that's only going to continue. And, you know, every day I talk to large allocators that have trepidation about Bitcoin precisely because of the environmental impact of the system. So it absolutely doesn't affect everyone on the sort of capital allocation, uh, capital management side of the industry. Uh, so it's already a consideration today. And I expect that will only continue to be the case as ESG gets fully normalized. Yeah. Uh, and so that would be the challenge that I would pose to Bitcoin miners. Bitcoin right. miners tend to be long Bitcoin. They want to accumulate Bitcoin. So their duty is to render themselves as environmentally friendly as possible or buy carbon offsets if they can't. Nick, I want to get your thoughts here uh, on Coinbase. We did get uh, that first earnings report uh, out of the company today. Obviously, they had guided uh, even before the direct listing, so we kind of knew the numbers. We did see pretty healthy uh, monthly transaction numbers here, and they're actually guiding a little bit higher. Um, what do you generally see here as sort of the bright spot for Coinbase going forward? Well, Coinbase is a very uh, straightforward business, frankly. You know, their revenues are... Um, you know, very much a, a function of retail trading volumes, and those have been strong. Uh, they haven't really changed there. There's not a lot new there. Um, so pretty much delivering exactly as expected. Of course, the uh, price performance has been somewhat disappointing, and it's, it's tracked sort of the broader crypto markets, um, but not a lot of surprises there. Uh, what I'd like to see would be uh, if they can diversify their revenue a little bit and uh, build in more lines of revenue uh, mirroring the way that conventional exchanges operate, uh, who, you know, they tend to have larger data businesses, uh, few crypto exchanges monetize their data, uh, and you know, seeing if Coinbase can maybe monetize their AUM 
uh, on a net interest margin model, perhaps, uh, which they haven't done so far. Uh, so they, they still have plenty of room for growth, frankly. Nick, of course, um, full disclosure, my husband's a senior manager over at Coinbase, so I won't pass over the numbers too much. But it is interesting that in some way Coinbase gets pulled down when crypto falls, but inherently they make money off the volatility they're in. Bitcoin currently trading 10% lower, but Ethereum down 10% as well. Even though we see yet another big institutional player hanging their hat in the crypto space, Steve Cohen's 0.72 exploring blockchain, the crypto sector. How is this a, I mean, I feel like you're going to say this is a buy the dip opportunity, but at what <laughs> point does it actually correct? Do you see a significant sell-off coming to the crypto space? We've sold off, I think, most of the sell-offs, partly to do with the, you know, the Elon effect and so on and the disappointment around that, but also very saliently regulatory concerns, uh, and that's going to affect the broader market. We see this Binance investigation today. Uh, I think a lot of people are starting to realize that this Gensler SEC is going to be much more aggressive, and uh, you know the SEC commissioner is going to try and make his mark on the crypto industry. Uh, and uh, frankly, a lot of these exchanges are are hosting the trading of dubious products, uh, things that resemble equity, things that might be uh, you know potentially brushing up against securities laws, and uh, so, it doesn't surprise me. Nick, real quickly, we just have a couple of seconds. Is it a problem for Bitcoin that I can't buy dog tokens with it and that I have to use Ethereum instead? Uh, I don't know if you want to be buying the dog tokens, Joe, frankly. Okay. <laughs> okay. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.